0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good good to see everybody. This has already been mentioned. If you are a visitor or a guest, we're certainly thrilled to have you join us this morning. I'm Pastor Bill, and it's my pleasure to get to open God's Word with you those of you who are uh, regular attenders, you know that when I come up here, we've been working our way through 1 uh, Peter. And we'll continue on in that the next time I'm up, Lord willing. But today we're going to just take a slight break. And we're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 18 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. So I've titled this this sermon, The Great Exchange, and maybe you're thinking, wow, that's a really great title. I would say, I know, it really is. But I can say that because it's not mine. Martin Luther refers to this text as the Great Exchange, and Lord willing, by the end of our time, you'll begin to see why. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we come here today because we are weak, but you are strong. We are sinners in need of a Savior, yet we need to often be reminded that this need has already been met. It has already been taken care of. All the other worries and stresses, while very real, pale in comparison to the freedom we have been given through Jesus Christ. For those who know you and love you, we have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. So, Father, as we have sung songs this morning and we have dined at the communion table, we pray that those have been used to prepare us now to open your word together. Give us humble hearts to hear your word and to be taught. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our section of scripture, again, we're going to cover is, it's focused on 2 Corinthians 5, 21. But for context, I'd like for us to look beginning at verse 16. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? So 2 Corinthians 5 and beginning with verse 16. From now on, therefore... so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Again, our focus this morning is going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and our topic is justification that we see in verse 21. You know, some of us as Christians in our Christian walk, we can tend to focus on justification and we need to be reminded of sanctification. And others, they tend to focus on sanctification and we need to be reminded of justification. Well, that's great, but what on earth do those two words mean? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is helpful and defines these two terms this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his holy sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Or maybe we could define them this way. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. While sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. This is a chart that Wayne Grudem made for his book, Systematic Theology, that describes the differences between the two. So, just to give one more shot at explaining the two, maybe we'll call this one the West Medford Catechism. Justification justification is our legal standing before God while sanctification is our growing more and more like Christ through our Christian walk. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Who cares? Why does this matter? Too often we can confuse the two, as well as, like I already, already mentioned, we can focus too much on one and not enough on the other. And the truth is they are both significant and important in their own way. If we only focus on justification, we can be prone towards antinomianism or cheap grace. If we focus too much on sanctification, we can be prone towards legalism. We want to land at that sweet spot between the two. So again, we're going to focus on verse 21. But in order to do that, I think we need to have some context. So in verses 18 through 20, Paul's describing this ministry of reconciliation that would seem to beg the question, how are we, who are sinners, reconciled to God, who is holy? And that's a really good question. I'm glad that you asked. See, we see part of the answer to this question when we look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of, of reconciliation. See how it says not counting their, their trespasses or their transgressions against them? But well, that seems to create another question in our minds. How is it that God cannot count our transgressions against us? Now, if we've been in church for a long time, we might have heard this before, yet if we're being honest, sometimes we may Maybe not all the time, but at times we can admit that, you know, deep down we think, what do you mean, how are we reconciled? I mean, don't we just say we're sorry for our sins, and then God responds by saying something like, oh, well, that's great. Done. Your sins are not a problem. Everything's better now. You're forgiven. But that's not how forgiveness works. In fact, it would be a violation of God's own nature. God is loving, yes, but God is also just. And sometimes we can be tempted to pit these two attributes against one another, as though somehow salvation is God letting 51% of love and mercy overcome that icky 49% of justice. But God, being holy and being just, does not simply pass over our sins because he feels like it. Sin is a personal offense to God. So if God were to simply look past our sins, simply wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling generous today. Your sins, not a big deal. As long as you're really, really sorry, you know, I'm, I'm not going to count them against you anymore. And let's be honest, that's how some Christians think that reconciliation works. If we feel bad enough, God says, well, look how bad they feel. That should be enough, right? Time already served. They've been through enough. So just don't worry about it. But that's not what God is like. In fact, in Proverbs 17, 15, God's word says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And We know this from our own experience. If you have a judge who justifies the wicked, and everyone knows that this person has has committed a crime, and they are guilty of double homicide, and everyone can see it, and the evidence is clear, and yet the judge says, I don't know, he, he feels pretty bad about it. Let's just let it go. None of us think that's justice. The problem, according to Scripture, is how can a just God pardon sinners? How can God, a God of holiness, pass over our sins without, at the same time, belittling his own holiness? The world, and sometimes us in the church, can ask the question and think, well, Why does God judge people? But when we understand the holiness of God, the real question is, Why does God save people? Why does he forgive people? When we truly understand the correlation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and not just man generically, but you and your sin, we can then struggle with the question, how can God justify the ungodly? Again, it's not like God to look at wicked people, no matter how sorry they are, and just say it's not a big deal. That's just it. God does not say that it's not a big deal. The reason that we can be reconciled is through justification. And this passage is the passage that outlines the great exchange, as Luther called it in verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, we must first understand that it does not say that God made Jesus to be a sinner. This would do away with the ground of redemption. So then how did God make Jesus, who never ceased being sinless, sin? Jesus never did anything wrong, and yet he was counted a sin. Why? So that as we belong to him, we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. His perfect righteousness to us and our sinful wickedness to him. Imagine, like in school, we we took a test, a test of obedience, obedience to God, and we got an F. Adam took it, our father, and he got an F. In fact, his F was then reckoned to our accounts. And then, as we continue to live, we just pile up more and more failing grades. And I know that some of you, your anxiety is just going up with that analogy. So how many F's did I get? But then Christ, he took the test. And he got an A. Now God is a fair teacher. He does, how does he give failing students a 4.0? Now all of you students out there, you think, well that's easy. You just have a teacher with mercy. But teachers also have justice, and they want to see that their standards have been met. So someone must be able to to make it so that their tests are counted towards your results. And so Christ, who got an A, credited to us, who failed the class, he got what we deserved so that we can get what he deserves. And in that way, God and rebels are reconciled. We are justified before God, and God's justice is satisfied in the great exchange. So justification includes a legal declaration by God. So we're talking about justification, our legal standing before God. So verse 21 says, he made him to be sin. Remember in that, in that catechism that we looked at at the beginning, remember what it said. It's the word imputation. Imputation only for the righteousness imputed to us. How do we see this in verse 21? The word imputed is not there. The connection is made between Christ being made sin, who knew no sin, and then us, we becoming the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange that Luther refers to. So we must become righteous in the same way that Christ became sin. That's the connection. How was he made sin? He didn't sin. He had no sin. He was made sin only in this respect, that it was credited to him. It was placed upon him that God would look upon us as the one who sinned. There was no actual sin within him or merit to deserve God's judgment. Logically, then, for verse 21 to stand in the same way, we must be made righteous. Which means we do not possess, in order to be justified, a quality of righteousness, actions of righteousness, or some sort of infused principle of righteousness. But rather, God declares us righteous. He credits us as righteous. God says, I will count you as being righteous, just as I count Christ as being sin. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, if you are a Christian justification what you contribute to your justification is your sin and that's it. It's nothing in you that caused you to be justified or made you worthy of being justified. God gives us the faith that rests in Christ that receives Christ so it is not that God gives you just enough righteousness to do it on your own. even just the desire to follow God is from him. you were dead. Dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive in Christ. So we don't want to say that justification is just some legal fiction. Again, God cannot justify the wicked. He doesn't just wave a wand and say, I don't care about your sins anymore. I know the law requires this, but I just I just don't care about the law anymore. That's how a lot of people think about justification. God is always fair. He would be unjust if he pardoned you without cause. But by the righteousness of Christ, he is able to pardon you and credit you to the righteousness that legally can only belong to you because of Christ. Let me try this analogy. I know that scripturally speaking, all analogies break down at some point, but we'll give it a try. Maybe you're a golfer. Well, let me say that differently. Maybe you play golf. I mean, personally, I enjoy playing golf, but I found that if I say that I'm a golfer, it implies a certain level of ability that would not be accurate. So you play golf, or even you've never played. And you're told that your whole life depends on your ability to play 18 holes and get a score of 62. And you might think, oh, I don't know, I'm not very good. I, I don't think I can do that, at least not easily. I mean, some people can. There are those who could do it. But me, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe if I work really, really hard, and on that day everything is just right, the wind is at my back, all the conditions are just so, maybe I could do it. Well, that would just be your own moral exertion. And God tells us, well, actually, it's not 62 You need to get 18. You need to play 18 holes of golf with one swing of the club at each hole. You can't do it. It's impossible. That's justification by sheer hard work. And some of us think that that's the way to do it. So another way we can think about this is that you might get the needed score is that God says, you know what? I can see how much this means to you. How special you are. I'm going to give you a miracle right now. Just poof. And you know what? I've given you super abilities. I've given you the perfect swing. And now, well, you're still going to have to work. But I've given you this miraculous, supernatural ability. And now, next Saturday, you can go out and you can just do it. With this kind of infused righteousness, you could say, in a sense, well, God was gracious, but it's still you doing the work. It's still your effort. Still, the test is, is he going to make it? But it's still about you. Third way of being justified and receiving the needed score in the course is that God says, you know what? Never mind. Go ahead. Just, you just walk up to the hole, and with your hand, just place the ball into the cup. Have at it. It doesn't matter anymore. That's not how justification works either. So there's a fourth way. And that is that God says, How about this? I'll send my son. My son can do it. My son can do it for you. And when he does it, I'll credit to you. I'll credit that to you. And and you're silly just walking it up and placing that in the cup. I'll credit that to him. He'll pay for your failure, and you'll reap the benefit of his reward. He will do what is impossible for you and you will receive the benefits of what he has done. That is justification by an imputed righteousness. Christ bore the curse of the law so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not because you are in possession of it, but because it's been credited to you. So why does this Why does this matter? What should be the impact of this in our daily lives? I would argue that a proper view of justification ought to have a significant impact on our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh pastor in the 1900s, in his book, Spiritual Depression, sounds like a (laughs) page-turner, He argues that many Christians are bound in a miserable state because they have not properly understood justification. He says they are probably Christians, but they're not very useful because they're joyless and miserable all the time. Sounds like a Welsh minister, doesn't it? He notes that this sort of Christian very often grew up in the church, very interested in the church, really wants to be a good Christian. In fact, he or she will be quite down on themselves when they see other Christians seeming to succeed in their walks. These are the sort of Christians, and I imagine that we have some in this room, you don't feel inspired reading missionary biographies. Why would you want to read that? You already feel like a terrible person. Why haven't I gone anywhere? I haven't given up my life like that. You read about the heroes of the faith, you don't feel inspired. You read sermons from Puritans, and you wonder if you're even actually a Christian, because your faith doesn't look like that. Lloyd-Jones says that's exactly what the devil wants to do to us. He wants you to be so focused on your sanctification, our growing in faith, our becoming more and more like Jesus, so focused on your sanctification before you ever properly understand justification. He can get us to be interested in all sorts of good things and move so quickly past justification that all you think about is all you have to do and how you have to get better. Not have that, not do this, which is a proper impulse, but it is improper if it is not rooted in and flowing out of the gospel. And so the devil gets us noticing all the things that we haven't done. All the things that other Christians are doing. Anything to keep us thinking about ourselves. He said the ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. It is because we listen to the devil instead of listening to God that we go down before him and fall before his attacks. It is Martin Lloyd-Jones who famously said, Our problem is we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. What on earth does that mean? At face value, it seems a little odd. He means we're always listening to ourselves, telling us how much we are failing, rather than talking to ourselves and speaking the gospel. We listen to the voice that says, we are not enough. Instead of preaching the gospel to ourselves that says, with, with Jesus it is finished. Say goodbye to your past. Stop comparing yourself with other people. You have the same righteousness as God's very son. If you are a Christian, Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you. And when people say, and this can be a very modern thing, People will say, well, I just can't forgive myself. Well, what do they mean? Of course you can't forgive yourself. And often we apply the wrong medicines. We can have good intentions, but we say, oh, no, no, no. No, you're you're not that bad. You have to learn to forgive yourself. Well, no. You and I can't forgive ourselves. That's why people say it. We know something deep inside of us. I am am not in a position to absolve my own sins. I cannot forgive myself. This is part of how we cheapen forgiveness. A sin against a holy God is not something we overlook. We're not talking about forgiveness amongst one another. We're talking about a holy forgiveness before God. But you can be forgiven by God based upon the righteousness of God of another the point is is that it's not about you and your ability to forgive yourself it's about god and that's because of jesus the penalty for your sins has been paid so often it is our own our own pride that does not allow us to accept forgiveness we want to prove our worth to god justification to have us look away from ourselves and look up at christ was not the sacrifice of christ enough for you was not his blood sufficient for you was not his death enough for you or are you going to add to your sin the sin of struggling to earn favor with god i probably don't have to tell you that we live in a day when anxiety is off the charts It's been said that we live in a world in which people have more prosperity than ever before, more opportunities than ever before, and yet people are more anxious than ever before. And we are applying unhelpful medicines. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're okay. That doesn't work. Because you're not okay. I'm not okay. Now, it's true. We can feel shame for things that we ought not to feel shame for. But in the broadest sense, you're right, there's guilt. We are sinners. Do not heal the wound lightly by just passing, you're okay, we're all okay. Well, let's talk about that. Why? Why can't you forgive yourself? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so hard on yourself? Because you're a sinner. And no matter how hard you are in yourself, it's not even as hard as you deserve. But here's the unimaginable good news. God has already treated his son with all the judgment that you deserve. And that is credited to us. It's nothing for us to perform, nothing for us to prove. A right understanding of justification ought to make us humble. Humble. If we think about this as categories, maybe the first category has us thinking, oh, I, I'm I'm always the Christian who seems to be failing. But maybe in the second category I want us to consider, you look and you think, I don't know. I think I sort of come out on top. I'm just glad I'm not as messed up as some of those other Christians. Whew. I'm glad that I really grew in my faith and now I really have this, this great theology. I've learned all these important lessons. Well, maybe you have. But have you considered, have we considered that you might be actually trusting your, in your own righteousness? And you see this happen. The very people who seem to be successful in their walk, oh, watch out. When they fail... They've, they've never learned to rely on the gospel. They've always sort of mentally assented to it. They always kind of said the right thing. They always knew the right doctrine. But inside, they could kind of convince themselves that they're basically, I mean, if they're not getting an A, maybe a B+, plus, when everyone else is getting C's and D's, until the time when they fail, when they sin, And you learn how much we've really not been relying on grace at all. We've been relying on ourselves. This is why I say that justification ought to make us humble. If you and I are justified, not according to works, but by faith alone, in grace alone, through Christ alone, why do we sometimes insist on everyone else being justified before us by works? Of course, it doesn't mean that we look past every offense as though there's no earthly justice. Of course, there is. But we we must ask ourselves this question in all honesty Why am I confident to stand before God? It's not because of your church attendance, it's not because of your retirement portfolio, it's not because of your job, it's not because of where you might get accepted into college. It's only because of the righteousness of Christ. And that means if we truly understand this, the gospel of unmerited grace, if that's what you've received, if that's what you and I are resting on, sheer unmerited grace, then shouldn't our response be the same? Not setting aside the law. Paul deals with that in Romans when it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That sin increase, that grace may abound. By no means. Of course not. He makes us slaves to righteousness. But it ought to make us, of all people, very humble. So we don't just focus on the fact that we are a sinner. I know, you say, but I am a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner, and you are justified because of Christ. So, scripturally speaking, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. We have in our day the burden, as another author called it, of the infinite extension of guilt. Guilt is everywhere. Everyone is constantly telling you all that you're doing is wrong. Perhaps you don't you come from the wrong background. You have the wrong education. You don't separate your recycling into the right containers. You haven't done enough for people. You haven't done enough here. You have too many sugars in your diet. On and on and on. You haven't raised your kids right. You have too much time in front of the television. We have the infinite extension of guilt. In our current society, there is very little grace shown to one another. No forgiveness. Yet get one chance and you messed up and it's infinite guilt. Our world has the Christian category of depravity and guilt and it has lost the categories of mercy and forgiveness. And there are books after books about this. We all have any number of, of scarlet letters pinned to our chest. Some have been pinned on for us and others we've pinned on ourselves. Justification is the medicine that our world so desperately needs without even realizing it. I mean, have you had those moments, even as a Christian, these, these moments where suddenly it, it hits you? And the truth makes its way that long distance from your head down into your heart. And you feel that sense of wonder and amazing freedom. And it doesn't make you want to go out and sin as many sins as you can. Instead, it makes you say, this is amazing. My biggest problem in the world is feeling right with myself, right in my world, right with God. And the gospel tells me how to solve that problem. We should be, of all people, the most joyful. Our greatest need in the world, our greatest need in life has been met. And it is finished. We have been redeemed. So I can stand before God, not based on my own merit, but because of Jesus. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our gospel is a message of reconciliation. So it's important that we understand justification, that it is finished, that the work has been done, it is accomplished. We understand this, we rejoice in this, while maintaining that understanding of sanctification. There is a difference, and that difference is key. Our sanctification is not how we are saved. It is our response to the amazing grace, to what God has already done. It is our obedience to the gospel that we do in response to God, out of gratitude to him. It is not how we are declared righteous. We are only declared righteous because of Christ and what he has done. Sometimes we see obedience as that thing that, well, we don't really want to do, but we feel like we kind of have to do it. I, mean, I guess, I mean, for all that God has done, which I didn't ask for, mind you, but he did it, so I guess I have to obey. I have to respond. I have to pay it back. Justification comes from God's grace alone and is ours through faith alone. But we cannot miss that the ground of our being declared righteous by God is due to the work of Christ alone. To understand this, we need to consider the two main covenants that God has made with humanity. The first of these covenants is the covenant of works, which was made with Adam as a a representative of all people in Eden. Adam was promised life or death depending on his obedience to the Lord's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, as a spoiler alert, if you haven't read this, Adam failed. And his failure plunged his descendants into sin. But God does not change his holy demands. And all people remain obligated to keep the covenant of works even though it is impossible for us to meet this standard. And God would have been entirely just to leave all people in their condemnation. But out of his love and mercy, he entered into a covenant of grace with his people, with people of his choosing. And this covenant, God provides a way for us to be reckoned as those who have kept the covenant of works. But we are not the ones who actually keep the covenant. Someone else does it for us. That's why it's a gracious covenant. Christ, by virtue of his perfect life and atoning death, fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf. This is what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. On the cross, our guilt for failing to keep God's covenants was imputed to Jesus. That is, our sin was reckoned to Christ's account and condemned in the flesh. The Father made him to be sinned. But if this was all that happened, we would not be righteous before God. We would be neutral, as Adam was before the fall. Jesus lived a life of flawless obedience, as we have seen in our study of 1 Peter. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Keeping the covenant of works and the record of this one who knew no sin is imputed to us when we trust in him alone. God reckons Christ's righteousness to our account and looking at us in Christ sees a record of perfect obedience and declares us righteous in his sight. Mankind's failure to meet the Lord's standard of perfection is an essential part of the gospel message. And the covenant of works informs us of his standard. Jesus did not come to give us our best life now or to bring us wealth and health today he came to earn a righteousness for us that would overcome death and make us worthy to stand before a holy god he was made sin on our behalf this is another way of saying that christ died for sins and the sense of christ dying as a sacrifice for sins the sinless christ took our condemnation that for us there might be condemnation no more Our Lord Jesus Christ's sinlessness was crucial to our forgiveness and salvation. Because he knew no sin, he could take ours. The gospel is the good news of the great exchange. That exchange took place at the cross. Lord Jesus Christ took in our place the wrath of God our sins deserve, so that in exchange we might receive his righteousness. And besides the gift of perfect and eternal salvation that we see in our text, we're reconciled to God. We become Christ's ambassadors in the world. All who are reconciled to God are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Verse 19 says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Crucial to our being ambassadors is that God makes his appeal to others through us. Verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Rightly understood in evangelism, it is God himself who calls. We are to implore men and women, be reconciled to God. We are to urge them to find their peace with him through the provision that he has made for sinners in his son's death. As we do so, it is God's voice that they hear and recognize. What greater privilege can there be in life? The more we understand the gospel and its glories, the more privileged we know ourselves to be in sharing it with others. We are not, called to be, we are not all called to be evangelists and pastors and teachers. However, we are all called to be ready to explain the hope that is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this. God is holy, and he is just, and I am not. At the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God, and I will be judged. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness, or lack of it, or the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect Righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you please pray with me? Father God, what good news it is that we are not justified by our time in prayer or by our parenting, by the good grades by preaching by suffering by helping the poor by the cleanliness of our homes by having babies we give thanks that we are not justified by any of these things for we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in jesus christ and in that and in him we rejoice We ask that you would pluck out that pride that is in us that wants to boast in our salvation as though we are the ones that get the credit. Let our boasting be in you and in your grace and mercy. In Christ we pray.